Um, we're in week three of our series, Our House. Working, oh, children are dismissed. <laughs> I'm vaguely aware of these little people, kind of at home. Um, working under the assumption that nearly, nearly all houses, not all houses, but nearly all houses have fundamental values, right, that guide the lives of the people living in that house. Um, some of them are spoken, some unspoken, taught, caught. Um, and these fundamental values, these common interests, like I talked about last week, they make claims on our life, right? And if we give in to those claims, we have a house with unity. We, we give up a little bit of our liberty so that we're free to live in unity, if that makes a lick of sense. Um, it's playoff time in the NFL. You guys are all well aware of that. And you're going to be hearing a lot of references to our house. Um, rest assured, they're not talking about church. <laughs> they're talking about their stadium. They call it their, their house. Um, but I bring that up because there's something very interesting about sports teams. They are acutely aware of this idea of fundamental values and common interests, like in a, and a common ethic, right? You see a football team and, or, a, or any kind of team, they leave the locker room, and they're usually slapping their hand on some phrase, right, that they all rally, they rally behind. Um, and some of them are really, really well-known, probably the best well-known one. Y'all know this one, just win, baby, right? Nobody has not heard of, of that one. Um, but another team had a, had a common ethic, similar to just win, baby, um, but it wasn't publicized. Um, but it was definitely the common ethic of that sports team. And here was the common ethic. If you hurt our main players on the other team, we will pay you extra money. See, that's what happens when you have a, kind of just a, a, an attitude of, of win at all costs. Well, that quickly goes haywire. It gets very, very, very weird. I mean, inflate gate, stealing signals in baseball. I mean, stories all, all over the place. Winning at all costs isn't a great mantra for anybody because it, it just gets weird. Um, it can easily morph into just something bad and, and wrong. My point is this. Um, for any group or community, whether it be a team, sports team, a business, a family, or a church, if we're aiming for the good life, all organizations, right, they're aiming for the good life for their membership, um, that'll depend on, on how you define good, right? What is good in the good life? I mean, shall we aim at, at happiness? Is that the good life? Or, or knowledge? Right? Is, that, is that the good life? Or, or virtue, right? Everybody being nice to each other, not necessarily happy, but nice to each other. You know, we can, we can aim for a lot of stuff, power, strength, war, a lot of things. Um, the creation of beautiful objects. A lot of societies decided that the good life, the pinnacle of the good life, is to create and enjoy art. That's the good life. Now, for the next couple of minutes, I'm going to be sharing some ideas um, from a book, Christian Ethics, by a guy named uh, Timothy Gaines, professor at uh, Trebekah Nazarene University. I uh, just kind of want to give credit to him. Just an incredible, incredible book. Just kind of keeps coming back. Into, into a lot of my thinking. It's just kind of wrecking me there, that, that book. Um, and he asks these questions about the good life. You know, how do we define good when we're shooting for the good life? Can we justify our lifestyles when people around the world are starving? Is going to war justified when it's likely that innocent people will be killed? These are questions he's asking that we need to wrestle with. Is it wrong to clone a human being or destroy human embryos in medical research? What are our obligations to future generations or and to the non-humans that we share the planet with. Even more basic questions quickly arise when we decide well, what exactly constitutes good 
in the first place, right? If we choose happiness, or for that matter, knowledge, virtue, power, whatever we choose, if we choose that thing as our common ethic that we're going to rally behind, will it be our own version of happiness, knowledge, power, whatever? Or will it be that which everybody agrees with, right? Or the most people, right? The most happiness for the most people, boom, there you go, good. Right? This is kind of related to the idea of virtue, Aristotle this idea that, that, that you know, kind of like Buddha, I guess, if, if you go to an extreme of knowledge, for example, if you have too much knowledge, you become kind of a jerk, and if you have too little knowledge, well, you're just kind of difficult to live with. And, and in health, in food, in anything, any extreme usually isn't healthy, so you kind of find that middle way. And Aristotle kind of pointed that out, that that's virtue, right? That's where the most of the people, because as you go into the extremes, you have fewer people, so you go with the majority. But what happens if you're not happy with what makes everybody else happy, right? That, that plan doesn't work so good. And what happens when the chosen virtue of a community, and this happens, the chosen virtue of a community can be an evil, an ism, racism, sexism, many isms. Then everything just kind of goes south quickly. Or there's the idea of duty, right? Certain things that we ought to do, certain things, Ten Commandments, you ought not to lie, right? Are some things good or bad, right or wrong, regardless of the circumstances, right? Just flat out, boom, inherently good or evil. Well, is it dishonest to protect a life? I mean, you, you got the scenario, you, you know, you've heard it. The murderer comes up, you know they're a serial child murderer, and right behind the closet door behind you is a small child that the murderer is looking for. The murderer asks you, do you know where that child is? What do you say? I cannot tell a lie. I'll be in the other room. Do what you've got to do. Right? You would, be the, you would be the picture of evil to the world, but you lied. Well, wait, wait, wait a minute. Right? What if stealing involves second base? I know that's just kind of a silly extreme, but a lot of these things, they, they have some gray area, just, just a little bit. Um, another common vision, uh, just, just a few in the, in the Western world, you've, you've heard of a lot of these. Um, a common ethic, right, for deciding good and bad, right from wrong, um, are, all, are some things good and bad, right or wrong, depending on the circumstances, right? Not regardless of circumstances, but depending on the circumstances. This is consequentialism or utilitarianism. John Stuart Mill, any of you guys want to dig into him? Um, I suggest you not. It's going to be long. Um, the results are what determine good and bad, right from wrong. If something good results, well, then whatever you did automatically was good. So I want to, you know, send my young boy to a, a brothel because I need him to learn about, well, that doesn't, that's not, that's not, that's not good. That, that's, those consequences are just odd all over the place, right? You, you can't decide that on consequences, right? And can we really ever, ever, ever be really accurate judges of the consequences? There was a study done. The airline industry decided that it would be safer if small children were seat belted. For a long time, they weren't. They sat on mom and dad's lap, so they instituted a rule. It would be safer for children, right? Did, trying, to, trying to craft a good policy, right? So they quickly find out that if the child isn't sitting on mom and dad's seat and they're seat belted, well, they got to pay for the extra seat. So the airline industry jumped all over that. Now they got to, you know, if you got a little kid, you got to pay a full seat ticket price for your little kid. 
Well, what did families decide at that point? They couldn't afford to fly, so they drove. Well, what happens when you drive? The fatality rate of people driving is far, far higher than an airplane. So long story short, more children were being killed because they were forced to drive than when they were flying on the airplane. So, so can we be the judge of the consequence of anything and make that the determining factor of right from wrong, good and bad? No. We just don't have the foresight to see all the way down the road. Will this result in something good or will this not result, right? We have our understanding. God's ways are higher. His understanding is far higher than ours. And appropriately enough, a final common ethic helping us decide the good life and the good is the divine, divine command theory, right? The goodness, the badness, the right or wrong of an act isn't in the act itself or in the consequences. The act is judged solely because it's a command of God. Boom, it's good. No questions asked, black and white, boom. No discussion necessary, right? And this is a very, very popular common ethic for morality as it's the only one with a foundation outside of ourselves, right? Free from the whims of our highly, highly suggestible justifications for what we do, right? All actions are judged by a morally perfect God, right? No questions, no gray area, right? Right, wrong, good, bad. Sounds so easy. But if it were, would we be in the mess that we're in, both in the church world and in our world at large, I don't think we'd be in this mess if it were that easy, right? What if God says two different things? Now, I know he doesn't, but a lot of us believe he does because he didn't tell you what he told me, right? He told you something wrong. He told me something right. You ever run into somebody like that? I was at a church once, and they, were, they wanted me as their pastor, and I, I had already decided for a lot of different reasons that wasn't going to happen. A couple came over to my house, and I said, God has told us flat out, right to my face, in my living room, that you are our new pastor. And I'm, uh, uh, well, God, God, God told me I'm not. <laughs> what else was I supposed to say to them? And, and that, that's what I said to them. And you should have seen their faces. Like, I, I don't know if I broke their faith or what. But we have that situation, right? The Civil War, there were a whole lot of Bible-believing, solid Christians on both sides of that war that fully believed that God was on their side. 100%, no questions asked, right? Think about the playoffs. How often, you, you know, the camera goes to the, the, the stands and you see somebody, a football player's mom or wife or girlfriend, and oh, oh, you know, and I know they're not praying for the safety of the other team. I, I know that, right? They're, pray, they're praying that their son would win and they're worried about his emotional health and all this kind of stuff. They couldn't care less about the emotional health of the losing player. Well, that's an odd prayer, Right? Politics. Every, every party thinks God's definitely on our side. And if you're not on our side, you are not a Bible believer. Right? If you're not a part of our, our party, right? We, we, all, we, all played, we all played those games, right? What about the Bible? Right? Hasn't God given clear instructions there, Pastor Jerry? Well, yes and no. Right? If you take the Bible as a whole, it's terribly... It's all over the place. It is all over the place, right? Look at the dietary laws, the dress codes, the family law, right? Do we, we want, is that something we want in our society? Is if, if, if David dies, then Jessica's got to marry his brother. Well, that is, she's like, no, that is not God's command. I know it's not, 
right? But we, we, we have the, these kind of things. Is it civil code, moral code? Was it the ritual temple code, right? If we take the Bible as a whole, many of its direct moral commands can appear contradictory, inapplicable, socially inappropriate, right? Polygamy, brothers. Are we going to force women outside the city once a month? I mean, at a certain point, you just go, no, 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 and no, right? It's as a whole, I'm saying this very carefully here, as a whole, the Bible is a very, very rough guide to living the good life because you're just, you're just going to be all over the map. You're, you're going to be all over the place. Two other limitations, right? The Bible appears silent on many issues in the modern world. Human gene splicing, right? What book of the Bible do you go to for that? Global trade policy, end-of-life decisions, the ethics of technology, economic ethics, race, culture, sexual, modern family ethics, all of this, right? You go to the Bible, and it's like, oh, where is that verse where I can tell my friend they're wrong and I'm right? Where's that verse? And the other limitation is us, right? Um, the writer, uh, Dr. Gaines, he says, a healthy dose of humility helps us realize sometimes we tend to focus on what makes us look good while ignoring other Bible passages, right? Nobody ever done that? No. Or we quit, but the Bible says this or that about a moral position, personally advantageous to us, but harmful for other people. And I think the greatest single appearance of inconsistency or contradictory commands from God, right, have to do with violence. This is in 1 Samuel chapter 15, verse 1. Listen to this. Samuel said to Saul, I am the one the Lord sent to anoint you king over his people Israel. So listen now to the message from the Lord. Verse 2, this is what the Lord Almighty says. I will punish the Amalekites for what they did to Israel. When they were waylaid, when they waylaid them as they came up from Egypt. Go now, attack the Amalekites, and totally destroy all that belongs to them. Right? This is basically a death sentence. Right? Food, clothing, shelter, gone. In an incredibly unforgiving environment. Right? Safety, security, gone. But that's not enough. The passage continues. Do not spare them. Put to death men and women, children and infants, cattle and sheep, camels and donkeys. Right? Kind of throws cold water on this whole idea. Well, I'm going to use the Bible to guide my moral life. Right? Wow. It, it, it's, right? But the passage gets even darker. King Saul and his men, they follow nearly all of God's commands. Now, let me ask you just a very quick question. You're looking at this passage right here. If you were a godly man, if you were a godly person, what might you not obey in this command? Just, just, just kind of throwing it out there. What might you not, like you would think, nah, must have heard, misheard God on that one, right? The first person that ever heard of circumcision, like, wait, 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 wait. What did God say exactly Right? In this case, they had to ask, wait, 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 is that really what God said? Because this is, wow, this is, wow, right? Watch closely <laughs> what they chose not to disobey, what they chose not to obey. But Saul and the army spared Agag and the best of the sheep and cattle, the fat calves and the lambs, everything that was good. Do you notice anything missing from the list? From the list of verse 3 of things to destroy, which ones aren't considered good? They aren't even included in the good life. Half the people in my listening to me, you're not good. Listen to this. 
These they were unwilling to destroy completely, but everything that was despised and weak, they totally destroyed. Read, women, children, and infants, despised and weak. And they thought they were properly interpreting God's command. That's the crazy part. They thought they were, man, me and God, right? One, we're just like, same thoughts, right? Boom. But when you read another book of the Bible, right? You have Jesus, who is God, God the Son, right? Saying the complete opposite. This is in Matthew chapter 5, verse 43 through 45. You've heard it said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you that you may be children of your Father in heaven, right? Or these words regarding the weak and the despised. Then Jesus brought the little children to Jesus for him to place his hands on them and pray for them. But the disciples rebuked them. Jesus said, let the little children come to me and do not hinder them for the kingdom of heaven belongs to such as these. Now, whether or not or how much, I'm going to say this very, very carefully, whether or not or how much all the violence inherent in that part of the world at that time in history, or the comparatively short amount of time that they really had to get to know God and his ways, right? I, I don't know how much all that played into what their early biblical writers attributed to God. I'm going to say that very, very, very carefully. They, they were human. As Wesleyans, we believe that God did not suddenly make them robots, little computers that just zipped out some sacred information, right? This was a record of people's relationship with God, and they accurately wrote down, this is what we're thinking, this is what we're feeling, and God said, good, leave it, I like it. It's a record of a people getting to know me. It's a record of them <laughs> going down a few wrong paths as they got to know me, and it's a record of them finding me again. It's, it's a record of this relationship but by the power of spirit, whatever was going on in this story, by the power of God's spirit, there remains an incredibly powerful lesson here. It it's really has kind of nothing to do with killing kids and infants. Horrible, horrible thing. Um, and it has to do with our, our discussion in deciphering what is the good in the, in the good life. Uh, I'm going to continue. Verse 13, it says this. When Samuel reached him, Saul said, The Lord bless you. I have carried out the Lord's instructions. But Saul, Samuel said, well, what then, is, what then is this bleeding of sheep in my ears? What is this lowing of cattle that I hear? Like, so sarcastic. Verse 15, Saul answered, the soldiers brought them from the Amalekites. They spared the best of the sheep and cattle to sacrifice to you, Lord your God, to the Lord your God. But we totally destroyed everything else. Right? Basically, God, you get what you want, we get what we want, and let's just call the whole thing good. That, that was Saul's kind of opinion. This is the good life. You get a little bit of what you want. Let's compromise, right? I get a little bit about what I want. I did obey a little bit of it. Saul reasoned that partial obedience is better than no obedience at all. Right? You've all gone down this road, some variation of this road. Right? I've already gone this far. Might as well go all the way. What more can one more time hurt, right? Nobody needs to know. It's not that big a deal. 100% right there, partial obedience. Oh, you can't even see the letters when I write right. Why didn't somebody tell me this? It says is better than no obedience. Oh, they can see it better up there. Oh, fantastic. Only me can't see it. Good, good, good. All right, so... Um, 
But Samuel replied, does the Lord delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as much as in obeying the Lord? Right? To obey is better than sacrifice. Not to obey partially is better than no obedience at all. No, that's not better. That's not better at all. The Lord totally disagreed with poor Saul. Right? And to heed is better than the fat of rams. In this passage, understand something. Sacrifice refers to anything we'd rather do than completely obey God. Just, just stop and hang on that one for a second. Right? We can call it religiosity. We can, we can call it, well, I, my, my family. Well, you know, you, the list can just go on and on and on and on and on and on and on. But in this passage, basically saying to obey is better than partially obeying. Right? You, you can't, yeah, he'll be happy with this. We find out later worship wasn't even on his mind. Right? He was afraid of his own men. He obeyed their desires before he considered obeying God's desires, God's direct commands, right? He was a poor leader, period, right? And in any chain of command, the weak link is eliminated. So God says, you are the weakest link. Boom, right here it is. Right here it is. For rebellion is like the sin of divination and arrogance like the evil of idolatry. Because you have rejected the word of the Lord, he has rejected you as king, Partial obedience is total disobedience, according to this passage. I think that's the theme throughout God's Word. It's nothing more than the rebellious arrogance that places you as king and center of the universe instead of God. Now, let's fast forward a thousand years, right? The discussion is continuing. It, it didn't stop. They didn't figure it out, right? We find the Jewish people a thousand years later, the time of Jesus, still arguing about what exactly constitutes the good and the good life, and, and still arguing about what exactly does it mean to obey the law, which there, in their view, was the way to the good life. So they couldn't decide on what the good life was. They couldn't decide on the way to the good life, right? They were just, they were just all in a mess. So now at that time, there were kind of two schools of thought in, in, uh, on this idea, right? Um, laws were either ultimately reduced, there was this tendency of the rabbis to ultimately reduce everything to one sentence, or to infinitely expand it into a bazillion, bazillion, bazillion laws, right? There were those that believed that there were lighter and weightier matters of the law, right? And that there were greater principles that you really needed to focus on, and you could afford to ignore some of the littler stuff, right? Aristotle said, love God and do what you like. Boom, right? So again, one tendency is try to gather up the law into one sentence, summing up everything. Shemaiah was a very famous uh, rabbi about 100 years before Jesus. He says that he, he had taught that Moses received 613 commands on Mount Sinai, right? 613 is that number we always hear. And according to him, 365 of them were for each day of the week and 248 of them were for the generations of men. I don't know how he arrived at this, but there's where he arrived. He's kind of reducing. Then David in Psalm chapter 15, he reduces 613 down to 11. Then Isaiah reduces the 11 down to 6 in chapter 33 of his book. And then Micah reduces the 6 down to 3 in Micah chapter 6. And then Isaiah chips in once more, <laughs> you can't outdo me, by reducing the 3 down to 2 in chapter 56 of his prophecy. And then Habakkuk hits the home run. The, not, not the home run. Let's, we're going to call it the hole in one. That's what we're going to call it. The hole in one. Chapter 2, verse 4. The righteous shall live by his faith. There's the whole Bible. Let's pray and go home. The other tendency, though, oh, you thought I was done. The other tendency was to expand the law limitlessly into hundreds and thousands and thousands of laws, right? 
Now, understand that they weren't necessarily competing tendencies. Not necessarily. Some, some rabbis really leaned one way or the other, but there was a kind of a mix of these two tendencies to reduce and expand, right? So, the idea here is to cover every conceivable situation, right? These folks believe that even the smallest principle was equally binding, and to try to distinguish between their relative importance was very dangerous. What if you decide wrong? What if God decided that this one was more important than that one, and you decided to ignore that one for this one? It was risky business is what they felt. Now, the problem with lists, though, they limit what you should and shouldn't do. They always limit, right? You only need to do these things, usually rituals, right, churchy stuff, and nothing else, right? You see the donkey in the ditch. Sorry, you're not on the list. <laughs> you move on. Or, or you don't do these things on the list, but anything else goes, right? Knock yourself out. Love God and do what you want. This is called legalism, right? And this is why it's so ugly. It shuts out love, right? Love becomes a duty. So one day amidst all the competing, contradicting, and inconsistent commands in Scripture pertaining to the good life, an expert in lists came up to Jesus. He was a scribe. The scribe's... They're the ones that wrote the oral law that added to the 613 into the hundreds of thousands of laws, right? And in this passage, right before this passage, these scribes, or Jesus had been having a discussion with the Sadducees, and they were the ultimate no-list people, right? They only believed in the first five books of the Bible and nothing else. Don't tell me anything else. No oral law, no, all, nothing. Total miminalist, right? Give me one sentence. Give me one sentence, right? This is the Sadducees where the scribes were like, give me another list. Give me another list. I love lists. I love lists. So the list man, he comes up and he decides to ask a carpenter from Nazareth how he understood the good life. Now, what was the good in, in the good life? This is Mark 12, verse 28. One of the teachers of the law, right, long lists, came and heard them debating. He was debating with the Sadducees, short list. Noticing that Jesus had given them a good answer, he asked them, of all the commandments, which is the most important? And Jesus gives them his answer. The most important one answer, Jesus, is this. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind, and with all your strength. Now, no Jew would have argued with Jesus on this one, right? This was the Shema, Deuteronomy 6, chapter 4. Every Jew repeated this every morning, Right? This was memorized. This was just a part of the fabric of their, their life. But then Jesus adds to it, adds to this one, but he's not making a list. I want you to watch that. Right? He's going to add to this, but he's not making a list. The second is this. Love your neighbor as yourself. There is no commandment, notice the singular, greater than these, notice the plural. Very odd sentence. This time Jesus quotes from Leviticus chapter 19, verse 18, but he alters it. If you go back to Leviticus, Leviticus chapter 19, verse 18, you're going to find out that they love their neighbors as long as their neighbor is a fellow Jew. If they're not, you're free to hate them. I wouldn't have included the Jews. Quite permissible to hate them. But Jesus quotes it without qualification, without any limiting boundaries, right? He's the first to put the two commandments together, and he makes them one Right, right there, one commandment out of two. 
You, you, you can't have one without the other. He would have said this, that the only way in which a man can prove that he loves God is by showing that he loves men. Religion to Jesus was loving God and loving men. Notice what he does with his answer, though. I don't know if you caught this. He ultimately reduces and at the same time infinitely expands anything that the rabbis had done before him, right? He does both, right? And again, they work in tandem. We can't do one without the other. So on the one hand, Jesus, his response simplifies our task, right? Greatly reduces it to one thing. As a believer, love God, Love them crazy. Love them with everything you got, right? Just one thing. Boom, one thing. And the fact of the matter is to love God and not love your neighbor is literally impossible. First John chapter, First John chapter 4, verse 20 says that if you say that you love God and you don't love your neighbor, you're a liar because you cannot have the love of God in you because God is love and at the same time hate your neighbor. Literally impossible, right? Boom. And, and, and besides that, right, if we... Um, if we if our theology doesn't extend to loving actions, we look a lot like Pharisees, right, to top everything else off. So this singular focus of God on also avoids the excesses of a community that, that, that finds a commonality in, in one, an evil-ism, right? The, the one commonality, the one virtue is, is, is God. Super simple. Keep it simple there, boss. So he simplifies things. But with a single unqualified statement, he also gives us the most challenging command ever. One sentence. I mean, how many different ways can we love each other? Let me ask you. How many different ways can you love each other? Probably more importantly, to truly experience the good life, the abundant life that Jesus spoke of, how many different ways do we desperately need to be loved by each other? You can each make a list. Boy, I'd be great if my neighbor did this for me. <laughs> no law, no list can sum up this one. Right. And then the scribe says this, and Jesus, Jesus likes it. He says, well said, teacher. The man replied, you are right in saying that God is one and that there is no other but him. To love him with all your heart, with all your understanding, and with all your strength, to love your neighbor as yourself is more important than all burnt offerings and sacrifices. Right? It's so easy. It's always so easy to let ritual take the place of love. Right? To maybe love God, you know, going to church, Bible prayer, fellowship, all that. It's just easier than loving your neighbor, right? You know your neighbor, right? You don't need to tell me. I know it's easier. I know it is, right? To pick and choose who and how to love. To think that partially obeying is good with God, right? As if God only wants to partially sanctify us. I mean, that's where you got to arrive. As soon as you start stepping back from his commands, you have to say to yourself, I'm not going to get all that God wants for me. And I guess I'm good with it. So in deciding the good life, we can ask two simultaneous, equally important questions and arrive at a common ethic that anybody, anywhere, in any place in time could easily get behind. Two questions. Will doing or not doing this or that honor and glorify God? Right, there's your first question. Second question. Would I like someone to do this and not do that to me or for me or someone I love, even if that someone and I don't like each other? Yes, that would be good. I would like that. Two fairly simple, easy-to-remember commands that really give us a good definition of, of the good in the good life and how to get there. I want to close with a quote from D.A. Carson. He says this, There is no question here 
of the priority of love over law. That's not what we were talking about, right? As if one system is better over the other system. But it's a priority of love within the law. Jesus didn't come to do away with the law, right? He came to fill it with love and make it a lovely thing, something that we can live by and that we can find the good life by. These two commands are the greatest because all Scripture hangs on them. Nothing in Scripture can cohere or truly be obeyed unless these two are first obeyed. The entire biblical revelation depends, excuse me, demands heart religion marked by total allegiance to God, loving him and loving one's neighbor. Without these two commands, the Bible is sterile. Bow your heads. Father, the whole world is looking for this unifying ethic, this, this, this thing that could bring all peoples together. And fathers, we, as we look through history, the only one that gets any traction is the love of Jesus Christ. And Father, you've asked us, the church, to get that message out. Get that message out to a world in desperate need of a unifying, common ethic. And it's not just love, it's the love of Jesus Christ. It's a self-emptying love, self-giving, always love. So, Father, this morning as we, as we decide in our own homes what's going to be a thing of value in our home, Father, I just pray that the law, as cold as that might sound, but the law infused with love would be a value, a fundamental value in every single home hearing my voice and if that were so, what an amazing world we would live in. Father, we pray for this eventuality, that your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. We pray that right now, Father. And we don't sit around and watch for it to happen. We actively participate in it happening. Otherwise, it doesn't. Thank you, Father, for this task that you've given us. It's an, weighty task. You've honored us with this task and you've given us everything we need to pull it off. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.